And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Several independent investigations have concluded that Israeli military forces were responsible for killing 51-year-old Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, according to a report from NPR. Now, Shireen worked for Al Jazeera and was killed while she was covering an Israeli military raid on a Palestinian refugee camp in the Israeli-occupied Palestine on the West Bank. She was killed on Wednesday, May 11th, just days before the May 15th anniversary of what is known as Al-Nakba. That is when Palestinians were forced from their lands in order to create the state of Israel. Israeli forces also attacked the funeral procession of Shireen, an act that was condemned by several world leaders, with the exception of U.S. President Joe Biden. The Biden administration has called for an investigation into her death. Shireen was daughter of Palestine by millions who over decades, watched her coverage of the treatment of Palestinian people. She became a journalist for Al Jazeera at the age of 26 years old. Let us go now to a clip from Al Jazeera. Thousands gather in London on the eve of Nakba, the day when Palestinians commemorate the trauma of 1948. Free, free Palestine! When more than 700,000 were forcibly expelled or fled their homeland. But now, another outrage. The killing of well-known and respected Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla. She was shot dead by Israeli forces while working, clearly labeled as press. And then, at her funeral, this. Many people have many words for this attack. From the White House podium, it was... We regret the intrusion. An intrusion. Press Secretary Jen Psaki would not go on to condemn the attack, and the president had this to say. I don't know all the detail, but I know it has to be investigated. Phyllis Bennis was not surprised. Well, there's a very consistent pattern here. The U.S. has been for decades the primary political, economic, military, strategic backer of Israel, and it's, among other things, been committed to preventing any level of accountability. Members of Congress have weighed in on Twitter, calling it deeply disturbing, unacceptable, saying the U.S. must condemn the attack on the funeral. And one congresswoman tweeted after her killing, the U.S. must demand an end to Israeli apartheid. The German foreign minister also weighed in. It's incredibly important to me, and we've made it very clear that her death is explained in a transparent way. And it's even sadder that the funeral ceremony could not be held in peace and dignity. To be honest, I'm deeply shocked. And the French foreign minister tweeted as well, saying he was shocked and appalled, condemning the death and demanding a transparent investigation. The Israeli police say they will investigate. Given the public comments from the Biden administration, it is unclear how much, if any, pressure they will put on Israel to follow through to try and explain all of this. Patty Colhane, Al Jazeera, Washington. Right, and part of the context of this, Israel continues to press ahead with more than 4,000 new illegal settlement homes on the West Bank, land that the Palestinian leaders 
are hoping for a future state. There are at least 600,000 illegal Jewish settlers who live in these Israeli-only housing complexes across the West Bank, as well as East Jerusalem. And in addition, by the way, of the killing of Shireen, a second Palestinian journalist, Ali al-Samudi, was hospitalized in stable condition after he was shot in the back by one of the three shots that was fired at Shireen. And 16 Palestinians were injured in the West Bank city of Al-Borei when Israeli forces attacked a Nakba Day protest. The Palestine Red Crescent Society said seven Palestinians were shot by live ammunition, three others by rubber-coated steel bullets. And the Catholic Church's top official in Jerusalem has condemned Israeli police for their violent attack on last Friday's uh, funeral of Shireen, calling it a severe violation of international norms and regulations. Here to give us an update on the entire situation, I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth Phyllis Benish. She directs the new Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, focusing on U.S., Middle East, and war policy. She also serves on the board of Jewish Voices for Peace. Her most recent books include Understanding Palestinian Israeli conflict. Phyllis, welcome back. Have you heard your voice in that last clip we just heard? Welcome. Yes, good to be with you. Good to be with you, Margaret. Phyllis, you know, for our listeners who, for some reason or the other, may be new to this situation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I made reference to Al-Nakba, which is marked on May 18th. Uh, perhaps just briefly give us a little historic context and then update us on these recent events. Phyllis Benes. The legacy of the Nakba and it's important that we see it in the context of what exists today. This is not something that happened 74 years ago and is over. But the term, it means, the word means catastrophe in, in Arabic. And it's the term that Palestinians have chosen to evoke what happened throughout 1947 and into 1948, but is, is commemorated particularly on the day that Israeli independence was declared. The declaration of it as a Jewish state which was based on and strategically planned to include the mass expulsion of the vast majority of the indigenous population. About 750,000 Palestinians were evicted, were forced out of their homes, were forced out of their country. The, the video, the, the primitive video of the time that shows long stretches of, of lines of refugees walking into Lebanon, walking into Jordan, walking into what would become the West Bank in the period after the Israeli declaration and after the, the war of independence, as the Israelis put it, was over. So that's the context. The reason that Palestinians are so determined to make sure that the world sees it as a, a continuing reality has everything to do with the question of what's going on today. And you referred to some of that, Margaret, the continuation of illegal settlement activity in the still-occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem, the, the siege of Gaza, all of these are components of what was the Nakba of 1948 and continues today. This is a situation that international human rights organizations, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the Israeli Human Rights Organization, Beth Selim, various UN representatives and agencies 
have identified as apartheid. And again, it's important, particularly for people that are coming to this issue rather recently, to be clear that this is not based on the notion that it looks just like South Africa under apartheid. It looks nothing like South Africa under apartheid. It's a very different system. Issues of citizenship, issues of labor, a whole host of things are different. What they share is that both the apartheid system of pre-1994 South Africa and of Israel and its control over the Palestinians today both violate the international covenant against the crime of apartheid. And there are a number of components to it. I would urge people to read the Human Rights Watch report and the Amnesty International report. That's important. But this is an ongoing reality of a, of a military occupation that has gone on in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem since 1967, and the settlement and colonial occupation of what is now all of Israel since 1948. So this is an ongoing catastrophe. And given that, I think that one of the things that's so important here, the level of outrage felt by Palestinians all around the world with the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla, this extraordinary journalist from Al Jazeera, who was the known face. She was on, on the evening news virtually every night, five days a week, across the Palestinian territories, across Israel in Palestinian homes, throughout the world where the Palestinian exiles still are living. She was the, the voice of Palestine for many. And it was an, an incredibly emotional reaction. Every Palestinian I know was, was devastated by this, despite the fact that so many journalists have been killed over the years. 86 journalists, Shireen was the 86th journalist killed in this conflict since 1967. There've been 20 just in the last two years. So this is not a new reality, but there was something very special about Shireen Abu Akhla and the personal connection that was made so shockingly worse by the attack on her funeral. We've just learned today that one of the pallbearers, Amro Abu Khedr, who was the one for people who saw that extraordinarily shocking 45-second video of the Israeli police attacking the funeral procession as it left St. Joseph's Hospital en route to the church for the actual funeral, attacking and beating the people in this procession, including the pallbearers themselves, who at one point lost their grip on the casket and her casket began to fall and was caught by, sorry, by one of the, one of the pallbearers. And that, I think, that moment is what made this something that was now a global moment that people are pointing to. You mentioned the Al Jazeera report mentioned the international condemnation of this attack coming from the leadership of the Catholic Church, coming from a host of world leaders, clearly not including the Biden administration, although members of Congress have identified it as outrageous, called for an independent investigation. But this is a scenario in which Israel cannot be allowed to investigate itself. There needs to be an international investigation. The U.S. needs to worry about investigating its own complicity because we're looking at a situation where the military aid that U.S. tax money goes to the Israeli military every year, $3.8 billion to start, and then usually close to a billion dollars or more added onto that every year without any oversight, without any conditionality without any control. And in this situation, when we are paying for what amounts to 20% of the entire military aid budget, we have to recognize that there's a very good chance that U.S. money paid for the weapons 
that were used at the funeral and for the weapon that was used to kill Shireen, for the bullet that killed Shireen. And that's why there needs to be an investigation here in the U.S. of what violations of U.S. law, aside from the international law violations, the Leahy law says explicitly, and I would quote it here, and it's talking about military assistance. It says no assistance shall be furnished under this act or the Arms Export Control Act to any unit of the security forces of a foreign country if the Secretary of State has credible information that such unit has committed a gross violation of human rights. There is no question that there is credible information from the journalists that were standing right with Shireen when she was killed that it was Israeli soldiers who were firing. The Israeli claims right away, of course, that, well, maybe Palestinians fired. They've pulled back from that because it's become clear, not least from an immediate investigation carried out by Betselem, the Israeli uh, human rights organization, that the Palestinian fighters who were involved earlier that day in a clash with Israeli troops were nowhere near where Shireen and the other journalists were standing. So that simply faded away. So now they're claiming, well, we don't really know. We will investigate. Not to worry. We'll do the investigation. We know from the past, even when other U.S. citizens were involved, when Rachel Corey was killed in 2003, a U.S. citizen who was working in Gaza, helping to protect Palestinians from having their homes demolished by Israeli soldiers, she was killed by an Israeli soldier using a bulldozer as a weapon. And while US administration and particularly members of Congress, some of whom are still around in Washington, were very sympathetic, very empathetic, very helpful to the family, they were never willing and able to actually demand of Israel a serious investigation. So the questions that they asked of the Israeli authorities were never answered and there was never any consequence. And that's what Israel is counting on today. We can't assume that the Biden administration is going to be any different. It's going to depend on our movements, keeping up a level of pressure more than ever before to demand not just a transparent investigation, but an investigation rooted in international law and independent of Israeli control. That's the only way that we're going to have a serious beginning of finding of complicity and of the accountability that's so desperately needed. Yes, and, and Phyllis, really, really good breaking that down for us there, making it very clear. Phyllis, you are on the board of Jewish Voices for Peace. And just in terms of the attitudes here in the United States, I'm wondering if you have noticed any shift that has happened, not only among the Jewish population in the U.S., but people generally, because as you know, there is a defensiveness that if you in any way critique Israeli policies against Palestinians, that that means you are anti-Semitic or some such. And I have heard that particularly among younger Jewish people, that there really is a shift of people being more open to making that critique. And also in terms of the boycott, divest sanctions movement, I mean, it was a bit of a surprise, perhaps not, to see the Harvard Crimson, um, I think, I don't know if it was last month or something, come out in support 
support of uh, the BDS movement that has been so under attack and practically criminalized by the U.S. Congress in some ways. So tell us about the view now in the United States, if, if there seems to be more openness to having a very clear-eyed view about what is happening to Palestinian people and the connection of being anti racist, saying you're anti-racist on the one hand, but on the other hand, not condemning what's happening to Palestinian people, particularly just one other thing too, with this whole great replacement theory business with what happened in Buffalo, where the claim is, is that Jewish people in the United States are orchestrating in part this great replacement theory. Phyllis Bennis. Well, you raise a bunch of important questions here, Margaret, and the first part is so very, very important that there is a massive shift underway in public consciousness and a significant shift in the media coverage of the questions of Palestinian rights, of Israeli oppression of Palestinians, of the issue of Israeli apartheid. What we're seeing is very visible in the the polls. And polls, of course, you have to be careful with polls. Polls are a snapshot. It's, It's a moment. But when there's a trend where poll after poll after poll is consistent, then you can look at polls and say, yeah, we're seeing a real shift here. So in the question of opinion in the Jewish community, the the shift over the last, say, five to 10 years has been extraordinary, particularly, as you say, among young Jews who are growing up committed to progressive politics, as Jews traditionally have been in this country and elsewhere, except on the question of Palestine. But you did see in the civil rights movement, the vast majority of white people who were involved in the civil rights movement, who went south with the Freedom Riders, et cetera, were Jews. In the Communist Party, there was a huge disproportionate number of Jews among the white people in the the Communist Party. And that's been a longstanding reality in this country and others. What we're seeing now is that that gap between the position on everything else and the position on Palestinian rights and recognizing Israel as being responsible for the oppression of Palestinians, that gap is narrowing. In recent polls, 25% of American Jews said they believe that Israel is an apartheid state. That's an amazing recognition. We're seeing huge shifts in the Democratic Party, again, particularly among young Democrats and among Democrats of color, who are saying that the Democratic Party needs to do more to criticize Israel, saying that there should be a reconsideration of the U.S. military aid to Israel. And people have different views on it. Some say it should be ended altogether. Some are saying it should be conditioned on human rights, making sure there's no human rights violations. There's different opinions, but the shift is massive. Where we're not yet seeing the important shift is on the question of policy. And here we're seeing a shift in the discourse in Congress. And that goes both to the champions of Palestinian rights uh, who have made incredibly important statements, powerful statements, condemning uh, Israeli actions. Most recently, of course, the killing of Shireen, the attack on the funeral, et cetera. Uh, What's going on right now at Masafir Yatta, where hundreds of Palestinians are facing eviction in what will be the largest dispossession of Palestinians as a group since 1999. Uh, So there's there's positions in Congress that that are moving. But beyond that, we're seeing shifts among mainstream members of Congress, for example, there were 12 uh, Jewish members of the House of Representatives who pressured President Biden 
during last year's May of 2021, the attacks that Israel was waging against Gaza we, and, and against Jerusalem at the same time, we saw 12 Jewish members of Congress pressing Biden to push for a ceasefire, which he was at that time refusing to do. We saw 25 senators doing the same thing. Crucially, we saw 500 former staffers of the Biden campaign, the Biden presidential campaign, the people who got him elected, who signed an open letter that identified issues of ethnic cleansing by Israel and demanded a reconsideration of the US relationship. So all of these shifts are underway. One of the challenges that we face as movements, the movement for support of Palestinian rights in this country, is to make sure that members of Congress and members of the administration are aware of that shift so they can no longer claim and no longer, frankly, believe, as I think many of them believe, that it is still somehow political suicide to criticize Israel. It simply isn't. It doesn't mean, and this goes to the second part of what you raised about the, the false accusation, the, the weaponization of the accusation of anti-Semitism, which is absolutely on the rise. It's being used particularly among against uh, students, student activists, organizations like Students for Justice in Palestine and others. It's being used against young Palestinians. It's being used on college campuses against faculty as well as students to claim that any mobilization of support for Palestinian rights is somehow anti-Semitic. When we know that the real threat of anti-Semitism, which is on the rise in this country, is coming from the violent white supremacist right wing, it's not coming from critics of Israeli occupation and Israeli apartheid. So we saw, as you just mentioned, in Buffalo, the link of this, I don't even know what to call him, but this person who carried out this slaughter of African-Americans in Buffalo in his manifesto that is reportedly written by him, he linked it to other earlier actions for example, the killing of Jews in their synagogue at prayer in Pittsburgh several years ago, when the claim was by the shooter that he was attacking Jews because a historic Jewish refugee rights organization that does incredibly important work right now on the southern border, dealing with a whole lot of refugees from Central America and elsewhere, the organization HIAS, that they were somehow responsible for bringing immigrants to the U.S., who were replacing good white Americans. The same thing happened in Charlottesville at the Unite the Right movement that led to the, the killing of one of the anti-racist, anti-fascist protesters. In that march of these right-wing organizations, these violent white supremacist organizations, the chant was, Jews will not replace us, which is based on this theory that you mentioned, the notion that Jews are leading a campaign to replace legacy, they, this is the term they like to use, quote, legacy Americans, meaning white people, leaving out, of course, the real legacy Americans who are the Native Americans, but leaving out that, taking the position that somehow there is an effort underway led by Jews to end the rights of white people as a majority and replace them with people of color. And this linkage between anti-Semitism and racism, anti-Blackness and anti-Semitism have a connection. They are both being targeted. Jews and people of color are all being targeted, not in the same way, it's not to the same degree, but there is this link between the, the struggle against anti-Semitism and the struggle against racism and against white supremacy. There are links and that's where the movements need to be coming together to, for this struggle. That's where we need to be working for 
Palestinian rights in the context of an anti-racist understanding in this country across the whole set of issues involving challenging the weaponization of anti-Semitism, challenging these white supremacist violent organizations and individuals. Right. Well, on that note, I know you have to dash. Uh, Phyllis Bettis, you break it down so very well and uh, to help us and our listeners understand what is going on and also the context uh, of it. And uh, I imagine, uh, Phyllis, just very quickly, people can follow your work. You publish quite a bit. And in terms of Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, people can do a search online if they're interested in uh, that organization. Jewish Voice for Peace dot org. Thank you so much, Phyllis Bennis. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret.